0: Hello listeners, welcome back to Voiceover Work and Audiobook Sampler. Where do you listen? Today is Monday, the 12th of June, 2023. In his recent audiobook, Rewire Your Anxious Brain, author Nick Trenton tells us, your anxious brain is completely within your control. Really? This book tackles the problem of an overactive brain. From the inside out, he teaches us step by step methods to stop dwelling on the negative using therapy techniques, to deconstruct the cycle of anxiety and conquer it, and how to overcome feeling paralyzed and terrified and start living your life. This is the chapter by chapter preview of Nick Trenton's audiobook, Rewire Your Anxious Brain. Part 1 Understanding How Anxiety Works Chapter 1 The Cycle of Anxiety Anxiety is a funny thing. You may well know how anxiety feels as it's happening, but do you really know what it is, how it works? If you're one of the millions of people who struggle with anxiety, you may have already noticed a certain irony in your position. The more anxious you feel, the more afraid you are of that experience, and the more you try to avoid it. But in avoiding it, you forego the opportunity to understand exactly what's happening to you, and so you continue to be at its mercy. It's a little like wondering what awful thing might be hiding under the bed. So long as you never actually look to see what's there, you'll never really know, and the fear will always remain big, nebulous, and completely unknown. So, this is where we'll start, by taking a good look under the bed to see what we're really dealing with. Anxiety manifests in each individual person in completely unique ways. Your anxiety will not be like anyone else's. That said, anxiety is a common human experience that is remarkably consistent across all historical periods, peoples, and cultures. There is much we know about anxiety, from its more abstract expressions to the very real physiological symptoms, like a pounding heart and elevated blood pressure. And though your particular experience of anxiety will be unique to you, you will most likely experience it as a definite and predictable pattern, i.e., the experience unfolds in a cycle. Knowledge is power. And the first way to gain power over anxiety is to learn its habits. You may find it far easier to deal with anxiety attacks if you recognize the signs of each of the four stages. This does two things. First, it tells you that your experience, no matter how unpleasant, will pass. Second, if you understand that an anxiety wave is coming, you can prepare for it. And in some cases, stand aside so the wave passes with as little damage as possible. Let's take a look at the familiar paths that the anxiety response travels. Stage one, noticing anxiety and wanting to deal with it. Because it's a continuous cycle, this isn't really step one, but it's a convenient place to start. This is the stage at which anxiety is triggered and an amplifying cycle is set off. A certain stimulus can start the snowball. But this stimulus doesn't necessarily have to be an objectively stressful event. It could be external, certain kinds of weather, sights or sounds, particular people, situations or environments, demands or challenges, something in the news, a kind of activity, even an object. Internal, a mental image, a memory, an idea, an internal bodily sensation, or a desire. The anxiety trigger may be a blend of many things, both internal and external. Whatever it is, this trigger causes a stress response, i.e., the famous fight-or-flight mode. All your perceptions then narrow in on this one stimulus, and you become hyper-focused on it, interpreting it as a threat, which it may or may not be. Let's consider the example of Annie, who has begun to experience panic attacks. Her trigger is a... cop. Chapter 2. Unwinding the Anxiety Habit Loop Experiencing anxiety is not a character flaw. It's not something that you're doing wrong. And it's definitely not something that's a permanent part of your personality. Instead, it's far easier to remind yourself that anxiety is simply a learned behavior. When we consistently repeat a behavior, our brains store the associated response. The more we repeat, the more entrenched those associations become. Even if you've been anxious for a long time or your associations are very deep, they are still just habits and they can be changed. When you think about it, so much of our daily life consists of these automatic habitual loops. It's just that most of them are quite neutral the way we make coffee in the morning, the way we get dressed, the order in which we clean the kitchen, and so on. Again, our brain is smart, and it uses this kind of autopilot thinking to help us complete essential but mundane tasks as efficiently as possible. Habits are great. We need habits. They are what allow us to save our mental resources for the real challenges of life. The brain, however, doesn't differentiate between different kinds of information. It doesn't know that it is helping you be really, really efficient at worrying about nothing. The brain does something that is easy and time-saving with no concern for whether it's accurate, useful, or in the interest of your overall well-being. In just the same way as you automatically brush your teeth every morning, you may worry and stress in endless loops. Again, this is not a character trait or a personal failing. The reason you have anxiety doesn't need to involve any heavy trauma from the past or complicated metaphysical explanations. The reason you're anxious today could be as simple as because you were anxious yesterday. The way you currently respond to stress is an indication of the way that you have most consistently reacted to stress in the past. Once the brain has been programmed to respond in a certain way, It will continue to make connections to the same loops, even if those reactions are counterproductive in the present moment. It will continue to do it, that is, until you deliberately stop the cycle. Automatic learning and habit cycles form in the area of the forebrain known as the basal ganglia. The three-part story of how a behavior becomes cemented as a habit goes like this. 1. A cue from the environment triggers you. Two, you do the behavior or run through a routine in response. Three, there's a reward so that the next time you encounter the cue, you remember and do the behavior again. Every single behavior that you do automatically today, good or bad, was once programmed via the above three steps. For example, one, cue. You see an email from your boss in your inbox. 2. Routine. You put off opening it for as long as possible. 3. Reward. You don't have to face whatever it is you might find in there, for a while at least. A reward doesn't have to be a carrot on a stick. It can sometimes be the simple avoidance of something unpleasant. Importantly, the cue, routine, and reward don't have to be genuinely linked. If we perceive them as linked somehow, then they are. Every time we run through the routine, the neural pathway strengthens. Chapter 3. Change Your Soundtrack John A. Cuff is the author of the bestseller Soundtracks, and he would agree, according to him. The antidote to overthinking isn't more thinking. The antidote is action. You don't think your way out of overthinking. You act your way out. You retire broken soundtracks. You replace them with new ones. You repeat them so often, they become as automatic as the old ones. Those are all actions. What does he mean by soundtracks? Well, it's exactly what it sounds like. Acuff thinks all of us have our own inner mental commentary that's always running in the background of our life like the soundtrack of a movie. Have you ever noticed how the feel of a movie scene can completely change depending on whether its neutral scenes are accompanied by a laugh track, silence, or scary horror movie music? It's the same, says Acuff, with life. His goal, then, is to help people challenge undermining soundtracks and create new supportive ones. According to Acuff, It isn't a problem to occasionally have negative thoughts. The problem is that we believe everything we think. Later in the book, we'll look at the power of gaining distance from your thoughts and perceptions and not simply taking everything you experience as plain fact. The first step for now, however, is to start paying attention to your soundtrack and noticing what it does for you. Then, become curious about what it would look like to do something else. Here's an example to show just what a difference soundtracks can make. Imagine a movie scene where the main character picks up their mail, only to discover a speeding fine. They pause and look at the letter, then open it to see that it'll cost them $200. Now, picture the same scene but occurring in different movies. In movie one, there's no music, the person looks at the fine, sighs, and puts it on their desk to deal with later. In movie two, there is a low thumping noise that gradually gets louder and louder, ending with some screeching psycho style violins. In movie three, there's some gentle comedic music with trumpets and a playful upbeat tempo. Can you see how the music choice completely changes the meaning of the scene? Now, Imagine that instead of a musical soundtrack, you have a mental one. Movie one, the person tells themselves, Oh man, that's annoying. But never mind. I'll deal with it when I get home later. Movie two, the person tells themselves, Yep, typical. No wonder you can't get anywhere in life. The way you keep burning money. You were an idiot and now you're going to be short this month. And you can bet that it's going to be a pain to try to pay this thing. You know what they're like. What's next? These things always come in threes, so watch out. That stupid car's engine is due to start giving me trouble any day now. I can just feel it. Typical. But then again, why worry about $200, right? You were never going to get a chance to save money anyway. Fine or no fine. Movie 3 The person tells themselves, oops, a fine, well, such is life, what are you going to do? It's only $200. Remember, though, that in every scene, the events are precisely the same. The soundtrack, though, can turn neutral events into a drama, a comedy, or a horror. Part 2. Unraveling the Anxiety Response Chapter 4. The Anxiety Timeline Recall that the fight-or-flight response is one that necessarily narrows perception. When you're anxious or fearful, your attention will zoom right in on the one thing you are perceiving as a threat and probably amplify it in the process. What this means is that being anxious is the opposite of being able to see the bigger picture, and that can be a problem. Using timelines as a way to gain that broader perspective again, and reacquaint yourself with the bigger picture that anxiety can sometimes cause you to lose sight of. Here's a question that may seem strange to you. How do you know that what you're experiencing is actually anxiety? The truth is that what many of us interpret as anxiety is actually a complicated cocktail of so-called meta-emotions that completely overwhelm us and make it difficult to identify with any clarity. When you're trapped in an anxiety spiral, all you know is that it feels bad and you want it to stop, but you lose any sense of what is happening and why, and you may also lose all sense of proportion. Timelining can be an antidote for this. It will help you break down the big confusing mess that anxiety can be into smaller, more manageable pieces. It will help you put those pieces into a logical order And link them up with a narrative that helps you contextualize what's actually happening. Now, timeline exercises usually cannot be done right when you're experiencing a peak of anxiety or worry. No matter how strong your willpower, things are simply moving too fast for you to make sense of them. Ever feel like your head is rushing a million miles an hour? That's not a time to embark on a timeline exercise. Instead, Do this exercise as a kind of anxiety post-mortem when you're feeling a little calmer. Looking from the outside, you're able to see the event with more neutral eyes and move through the memory almost as though you have a pause, rewind, and fast-forward button and you're watching it as a film. Pause. Stop for a moment and remember a particular episode, really focusing on what happened and what you felt and thought. Knowing your anxiety symptoms and triggers can help you identify future anxiety episodes. These sensations then stop serving as triggers, but instead become little alerts that bring you to awareness and give you the opportunity to run a different program. Rewind. This helps you see what may have contributed to your anxiety in the situation, Were you going down rabbit holes online, drinking too much coffee, dwelling again on that embarrassing memory from five years ago? Fast forward. Zoom ahead to the outcome of the situation and look at your responses to your anxiety. Did you get anxious because you were anxious? Did you berate yourself, apologize, feel shame? Look at this consequence clearly. And see it now, without judgment. Do the timeline exercise with a pen and paper, or else using a word processor. Take your time. Reconstruct the event as best you can, almost like you're a forensic detective piecing together a crime. Put things in chronological order, and look for connects and cause and effect relationships. Look for cues and triggers. Look for rewards. Chapter 5 The ABCDE method. Albert Ellis, the so-called grandfather of cognitive behavioral therapy, noticed something interesting about the patients who would visit him. He saw that different people would have entirely different reactions to the same events. This observation was not new even then. The Stoic philosopher noted that you were disturbed not by things, but the views which you take of them. This means that when you sit down and try to tackle the problem of anxiety, a good starting point may not be the things that you believe are stressing you out, but your reaction to those things, the stress itself. For Ellis, the heart of the matter was our set of beliefs about the world. He was one of the first to lay out a framework of triggers and rewards that came before and after such beliefs. A. Activating Event B. Belief C. Consequence In true Stoic fashion, the activating event is neutral. It has no intrinsic meaning of its own, but our brain responds to it in a particular way, and that results in B. Our belief. Ellis believed that there were broadly two types of belief, rational and irrational, so the activating event might be a black cat walking on the road in front of you. An irrational belief may be, I'm going to have a bad day now. And a rational belief may be, oh, there's a cat. Cute. According to Ellis, the former response will lead to largely negative consequences, C, while the latter will lead to largely positive ones. Here, rational is not quite meant in a philosophical sense, but more along the lines of what we already covered, beliefs that are accurate, useful, and kind. The logic goes that if you can see that you are experiencing negative emotions, let's say overthinking and anxiety, then somewhere along the line, you have entertained an irrational or unhelpful thought. In the late 80s British sitcom Red Dwarf, there's a storyline involving a character who gets to see how his life might have played out in an alternate universe. The two lives branch off at a single pivotal point, whether the character gets held back in school for a year or not. One life turns out to be heroic and successful, and the other turns out to be comically awful. Throughout the episode, the viewer is assuming that the character with the awful life was the one who was held back. He bemoans his fate and blames this limiting incident for setting his life on the wrong course forever. He claims that the other possible life, the one that turned out brilliantly, only worked out that way because that version of the character was allowed to advance a grade, unlike him. The twist at the end of the episode, however, reveals that it was, in fact, the uber-successful version of the character that was held back, and not the other way around. This ultra-successful version explains that this event was really the single best thing That happened to him. It allowed him to grow, to learn more about himself, to rise to the challenge, and so on. The other, less successful version, became that way because he was never so challenged. We see that this event, being held back or not held back, is actually neutral, and that what has really determined the two characters' fates is their response to the event and not the event itself you don't need a parallel universe plot device to see this same chapter six managing expectations ellie has just had a baby it's been something she's wanted for a long time and planned for many years she is completely committed to doing the very best she can and has taken every class and read every parenting book within months of finding out she was pregnant one day Her week's-old infant screams all through the night and has a raging fever in the morning. Ellie is exhausted, terrified, and eaten up with guilt. What has she done wrong? She's stunned to find herself feeling resentful of the baby, angry at the doctors and nurses, and just about ready to divorce her husband. Within three days, she's a ball of anxiety, and her thoughts are racing to some dark places. "'I'm an awful mother. I'm failing. I've damaged my child forever. I've messed everything up.' Later in the week, Ellie's mother comes over to help. She says to Ellie, "'What's the big deal? Your kid had a fever. Kids get fevers every two minutes when they're little.' "'What's happened here? What is the cause of Ellie's anxiety?' If we look closely at Ellie's underlying beliefs about her situation, we might find one very pesky and very revealing word—should. He should not be this sick. I shouldn't be so upset by such a small problem. I should know how to deal with this. I should have put his beanie on yesterday. He shouldn't be crying. I shouldn't feel like I want to throw him out the window— That's really bad. Reality is what actually occurs. Expectations are demands we make on reality. It would be ideal if these two were in sync, but in practice they seldom are. Anxiety can be seen as growing in that distance between expectation and reality. When things don't go as planned, it's easy to feel let down, disappointed, and anxious. An expectation can feel like a rule that's been broken. Our belief can frame an unmet expectation as a problem when it never really was one. It's normal to have expectations of the world, but the problem comes when our expectations are unrealistic or, there's that word again, irrational. If Ellie is honest with herself, she would see a few unconscious expectations that don't really make sense. Perhaps social media has convinced her that she should be finding motherhood easier than it realistically can be. Perhaps her overly high standards have made her judge her own reasonable behavior as lacking somehow. If she takes a step back, though, she might see what her mother does. It really is no big deal. When your expectations outpace reality, it can also mean that you don't appreciate what you do have. This is why anxiety problems tend to go hand in hand with a serious lack of gratitude. All while Ellie is stressed about her child's fever, she's not appreciating any of the other blessings in her life, like her attentive and loving husband. It's wonderful to have aspirations and to imagine better things that could be. It's wonderful to hope for something better and to hold yourself to high standards, but these should inspire you. They should never be so unrealistic that they cause anxiety and unhappiness. What are your expectations? Expectations. Part 3. Your Brain, Friend, or Foe. Chapter 7. Cognitive Distortions and the Triple Column Technique. The more you pause, become aware, and learn to accept your feelings while gaining some healthy distance from them, the more you will start to see patterns. Your soundtrack and the negative thought patterns and beliefs that are keeping your anxiety in place do so because they are distorted. In just the same way as a funhouse mirror warps reality, your mind can warp what it perceives. Cognitive distortions are inaccurate pictures of reality. Though it's possible to have a beneficial distortion, most of us have internal mental filters or biases that make us feel worse about ourselves, contribute to our anxiety, and increase the amount of misery we experience. Our mental processes are constantly working to sort through a great deal of data. Our brains are always looking for ways to get around obstacles and reduce the amount of mental work we have to do. Sometimes these shortcuts are useful but sometimes they just jeopardize us. How many different kinds of cognitive distortions are there? Well, in a way, there are as many distortions as there are possible thoughts. Below, we'll have a look at some common flavors, but we won't dwell on this since, in the end, this is not that important. What is important is recognizing that a distortion has occurred at all and learning how to bring our perceptions back to reality. As you read through the following list, see if some resonate with you. Can you recognize them in any of your core beliefs or anxiety soundtracks? Chances are you'll have a colorful blend of many all at once. A Catalog of Distortions All or Nothing Thinking All or Nothing Thinking, also called polarized thinking or black and white thinking, is the idea that everything can be seen in terms of two extremes that are opposites of each other. No middle ground, no shades of gray. This way of thinking is easy to spot, because it uses absolute words like always, never, and forever. Examples I'm a bad person. He hates the whole thing. It's completely impossible and always will be. Overgeneralization This is a broad statement, incorrectly made, about a specific situation. It takes a single instance and over-extrapolates to all situations at all times everywhere. Examples? I never do anything right when you do one thing wrong. The world is going down the tube when you should drop your toast on the floor. People are cruel when one person has been cruel to you. Mental Filter As we've already seen, a mental filter is simply a skewed way of thinking. It's like wearing a tinted pair of glasses or listening to a particular soundtrack play over your life. Or it's like having unconscious expectations about what life is and can be. Examples? Oh, here's some mail that arrived. I wonder what they want now. I've submitted it but they probably won't even see my application. She said nothing, so I know she's mad at me. Disqualifying the Positive When you have a fixed negative idea of the world, you unconsciously look for evidence that supports it. Chapter 8. Reality Testing Sigmund Freud was the first to coin the term reality testing. In essence, This is a way to make a clear distinction between your own thoughts, hopes, wishes, fears, and ideas about an event and reality itself. This is actually a pretty rare ability. If we can see reality for what it is, then we gain an enormous advantage over ourselves when it comes to self-defeating patterns like rumination and anxiety. We already employed a form of structured reality testing in the previous chapter where we gradually asked ourselves whether our automatic thoughts really stood up to further scrutiny. This is the testing part, where we actively look for alternative explanations, dial down our assumptions, and ask if we actually have any evidence for our conclusions. It turns our anxieties into something we have to handle and manage, rather than something enormous that we are trapped inside of. Some people even give the voice of reality testing and identity. They imagine that they have an internal cheerleader or wise inner sage that's always looking out for them and always sees things clearly. This is the opposite of the inner critic and frequently argues against it. They get in the habit of not trusting their first mental impulse, but running it past this wiser, higher self first to see if it passes the test. Here's what reality testing looks like. You first think, "'My friend saw me in the street but ignored me. "'He must really dislike me, after all. "'Maybe he was hoping I didn't see him and didn't want to talk to me.' Upon reality testing, you think instead, "'Maybe there's another explanation. "'Maybe he didn't see me at all. "'Or maybe he didn't greet me just because he's in a hurry "'and didn't have time to talk but didn't want to be rude.' Or you first think, I messed up my first pottery lesson and didn't finish my bowl in time. The teacher thinks I'm the worst student she's had. Probably doesn't even want me to come back. On second thought, you moderate this and come up with an alternative. Be rational. She is a beginner's pottery teacher. Her whole job is to work with people who don't yet know how to do pottery. There's no logical reason for her not to want me to return. Her business depends on it. Also, just because I don't know how to do pottery right now doesn't mean I can't learn. After all, that was the whole point of joining a class. I wouldn't need to go to a class if I could do it perfectly already. The big thing about reality testing is that it is not automatic. Call it human nature, but most of us have the more negative, repetitive, and self-defeating thoughts on autopilot, whereas the more supportive ones take conscious effort. Reality testing is simply giving yourself enough space to think of something different. It's about not taking your own word for it. Think of it as a kind of meta-thinking. You don't just trust the first knee-jerk thing that pops into your head, but rather you have high standards for your thoughts. They need to actually be true before you entertain them. Luckily for us, This is a skill we can learn and strengthen. It's perfectly okay to have an automatic negative thought at first, but it doesn't mean that you can't follow it with something better, something you choose mindfully. So, how do we do it? Three Ways to Put Your Thoughts to the Test Be Objective You're seeing one perspective. Chapter 9 The Batman Effect When you live with anxiety, and pay a lot of attention to that negative inner voice, it's as though you become a temporarily worse version of yourself. You become smaller, more fearful, doubtful, pessimistic. A less confident, less creative, and less resilient version of yourself. The Batman effect is basically the reverse of this. It's an attempt to not only counter your brain's own bias against you, replace it with something that will actually work for you. The term comes from the fictional character Bruce Wayne's constant struggle to overcome problems as a normal person. He has his normal version of himself, but then he's also Batman, who is capable of so, so much more. Studies have shown that when children pretend to be a competent and powerful character they know from film or TV, they persevere with boring tasks far longer, and they actually performed better than if they had simply tackled the tasks as themselves. This is a pretty big deal. By putting themselves in the shoes of someone who is not fearful, unconfident, or incapable, it's as though the children learn to literally see the world from that perspective. Problems are easier to solve, and obstacles easier to deal with. The Batman effect shows us the power of gaining psychological distance from our own limited ideas of who we are and what we are capable of. A 2016 study at the University of Minnesota showed how self-distance, or looking at your own situation from the point of view of an outsider, can increase persistence and resilience. In the study, children of four and six years old were given a task and asked to repeat it over and over for 10 minutes. If they couldn't go on, they were offered a break and a game. When the kids took on the perspective of a superhero like Batman, they took fewer breaks and pressed on, even when the task got challenging or repetitive. They took more breaks when they took a first-person point of view, i.e., acted as themselves. Now, this may seem like a bit of a gimmick. Can you really reduce your anxiety levels? Just by pretending you're a character who isn't anxious, it turns out the strategy of adopting an alter ego is actually a perfect way to gain some distance from strong emotions and look at a situation more objectively. Rachel White, an assistant professor of psychology at Hamilton College in New York State, says that putting distance between ourselves and a challenging situation helps us think more clearly about it. It could be as simple as asking yourself, what would Batman do? She says it's a great idea to choose a different alter ego for different goals or challenges. She claims, when I was a postdoc, we had a little saying in our lab that if you're an undergrad, pretend to be a grad student. If you're a grad student, pretend to be a postdoc. If you're a postdoc, pretend to be the leader of the lab just to get you to that next level. This may be far more effective than robotically writing down affirmations or saying ready-made affirmations. Instead, why not have a morning ritual where you try on your alter ego's perspective? Have a piece of jewelry or a lucky pair of socks that you pick for days you know will be challenging. Make the connection internally that when you wear these things, it's the same as a superhero putting on their cape. How to create a non chapter 10 learning to tolerate uncertainty, uncertainty is a part of life. We are never ever in the position to be certain about what will happen tomorrow or a month from now. We can never truly know what others are thinking or how life would have looked if we'd made a different decision. And when times are tough, none of us mere mortals can predict how things will pan out or what the best risk-free way forward is. However, people do seem to vary significantly in their ability to tolerate this fact of life. Uncertainty tolerance is a variable in a person's psychological makeup, just like a peanut allergy or an inability to digest lactose. If you have issues with anxiety, chances are you are one of those people who have a very low threshold for uncertainty. Is that a problem? Not really. Most of us like a little familiarity, routine, and predictability in life. That's why we order the same thing as restaurants, wake up at the same time each day, and prefer talking to people we already know instead of strangers. There's nothing wrong with being uncomfortable with the unknown or the novel. That is, until there is something wrong with it. Anxiety is a sign that your intolerance for uncertainty has gone a little too far. If you're allergic to a food, your body goes into an extreme reactive mode. You wheeze, your throat closes, maybe you break out in hives, or start coughing, or even go into shock. It's the same for uncertainty tolerance. Your mind goes into an extreme reactive mode, and you do whatever you can to avoid and manage that feeling of uncertainty. Only this reaction is more of a problem than the uncertainty ever will be. There are loads of things people do when they're trying to make the unknown known or the uncertain certain. You may obsessively seek reassurance from other people, either checking their opinions or asking them to tell you that everything is or will be okay. Comparing perspectives or asking for help is one thing, but reassurance seeking becomes a problem when you keep doing it and it doesn't seem to soothe you anyway. You prefer to do tasks yourself just so you can be sure that they're done properly and you won't have to leave it to someone else. This feels like a good way to manage stress, but often makes more of it since you end up doing everything. You may do research in an effort to gather as much information as possible so that the unknown feels a little less scary. You Google a problem to death or sit with a journal and make a dozen pros and cons lists, or try to force an ambiguous situation by breaking it down on a page. You might be a very busy, active person who can never sit still. You might like the feeling of always having something to do, as at least this means that you're being proactive and are not at the mercy of random, unknown events that you can't control. Distraction can be a classic way to avoid having to sit with the sheer uncertainty of a situation. Avoidance can make you turn down novel experiences, avoid potentially good opportunities, and live a life that lacks spontaneity. Think of the person who would rather spoil a nice surprise by knowing what it is immediately than tolerate a moment of anticipation and mystery. You may constantly check and confirm to make sure plans are going ahead, or to check up on people. You may go over emails and messages a million times. Chapter 11. Externalization Understanding the timeline your anxiety plays out across, using the ABCDE method, stepping outside of your brain to look carefully at its cognitive distortions, reality testing, and the Batman technique all of these approaches have one major thing in common. They all work because they act to separate us from our anxious experience and put distance between us and that feeling. And that's why they all work. In this chapter, we'll be looking more closely at the idea of externalization, which is any time we're able to connect to the world outside of our currently anxious experience. Externalization is is like a little peephole through which we can see a glimpse of something different, the possibility of a non-anxious way of being. Sometimes just being cognizant of the fact that you are anxious and that you don't necessarily have to be is all it takes to knock you off that fixation. That's because anxiety is a narrowing of perception. If you can open your perception again, you reduce the anxiety. Throughout the chapters of this book, we've considered many different ways to contextualize the anxiety response, to take a step back and get a different view on it, or to put different filters over it. This is not just so we can be free of unpleasant negative emotions, but also so that we can better experience positive ones. Without anxiety, or should we say, With healthy levels of anxiety, you're free to be more of who you are, to take good risks, to explore and create, to change and evolve, and to enjoy living your life as a valuable person with unique talents and useful insights. So many people talk about eliminating or reducing anxiety, including in this book, but sometimes all that's needed is to just change the way we're looking at it. Externalization sounds simple, but once you really understand what it's about, you may be astonished by just how powerful a force it really is. Here are a few more ways to use externalization to disentangle from your anxiety once and for all. When a problem is internalized, it's difficult to see it clearly. This is like being on street level in some strange new city and feeling completely lost. You look down alleyways, but you don't know how far along they go or where they lead to. You're not quite sure how bad your predicament is, since you can't tell the way out or if you're making any progress. If you've ever been badly lost, you'll recognize one particular sensation that also occurs with anxiety. The sinking feeling that a bad situation could go on forever and ever. Externalizing, however, is getting a different view on the problem. In this example, it's like zooming high up into the air and looking down on yourself inside that city. You are still in the city, but you can now see the city's edges and can clearly find a way out. The problem suddenly has a definite size and shape, and there's the promise of a solution. Compare this example with the following statements. 1. I am an anxious person. Two, I am experiencing anxiety right now. The speaker of the first sentence is completely identified with their situation, internalized, and enmeshed with the anxiety. They're trapped. Part 5. Smart Stress Management Tools As you get better at managing and working with your own anxiety, you will improve your ability to discern between good stress and bad stress. You'll be able to identify when your stress is alerting you to a healthy limit or reminding you to take a break or be cautious. You'll know when your hesitation has a rational basis and when it's just a bad old habit you learned long ago. Once you've reached this point, it becomes necessary to learn how to manage ordinary everyday stress. In this chapter, we'll be looking at a few skills and techniques to master as you learn to deal with the stressors of daily life. Chapter 12, Mind Mapping. You might associate mind maps with studying for exams, but they're also a great way to improve mental health and a tool that can help you find clarity and calm. A mind map does exactly what it sounds like it does, helps you put down, in black and white, a map of your current mind. It's yet another way to externalize anxiety. Imagine you're anxious one day. The feeling comes on slowly and And then, suddenly, it's hard to say what it is exactly or where it's coming from. You just know it feels bad. There's a jumble of unpleasant physical sensations, and weird feelings of discomfort seem to blur the lines between physical, mental, and emotional. There are thoughts whizzing around in your head, but they don't start and finish, and they leap from one to the other without any rhyme or reason. In other words, it's a mess. This is where a mind map comes in. It helps you take a snapshot of that mess so you can untangle it and reflect on what's going on. Anytime you find yourself asking, why do I feel this way? What's wrong with me? What's happening to me? Then it's time to slow down and make a mind map. Here's how. Step one, notice how your body feels. What physical sensations are you experiencing? Slow down, give them a name, and locate them in your body. Too many of us have spent a lifetime ignoring what happens from our neck down. We stop registering the information sent to us from our senses, and we become numb to physical signs of stress. Let's say you get home from work one day, and you feel really, really tired. You can't put your finger on it, only you know it feels awful, and you want it to stop. You sit down with a piece of A4 paper and write in the middle, how do I feel, and draw a circle around it. You then draw a branch from there and label it body. From that branch, you note strange, nauseous feeling, tight shoulders, pins and needles sensation over the top of skull, dry mouth, and so on. This is noting, however, not judging, diagnosing, or assuming. Step 2. Notice Areas of Tension If your life itself was a body, where would it be tight right now? Let's say you draw another arm and label this Concerns. What's capturing your attention most at this moment? In the height of panic, it will feel like 4,000 things. That's okay. Keep drawing another branch and list them all out. Eventually, you'll feel like you've put everything down. There's no way to do it wrong, so don't overthink it. In our example, let's say you note down discomfort around relationship with sister, worries about drinking too much, overwhelm at work, unsure what to do about event on Saturday, feelings at the road. Chapter 13. Better decision-making means less anxiety. Too much choice. Barry Schwartz is a professor of social theory and social action at Swarthmore College. He also authored the book, The Paradox of Choice, Why More is Less, and is now well known for his TED Talk on the puzzle of how more choices isn't always better. Schwartz states that while having a choice is great, having too many options can be overwhelming. When we're overloaded with choice, the effect is not liberation, but a feeling of anxiety, stress, and depression. The paradox he talks about is how, when we have too many options— We actually tend to act less, make poor decisions, or become immobilized and demoralized. Even worse, we blame ourselves for being indecisive or procrastinating, or we're hard on ourselves when our expectations are so distorted that we cannot help being disappointed when we finally do choose something. One phenomenon Schwartz is clear in pointing out is the modern FOMO, or fear of missing out. Even when we do our best to choose wisely, we can never shake the feeling that the other option might have been better and that we're missing out by not having chosen it. Overchoice was coined by futurist author Alvin Toffler in 1970 in his book, Future Shock. He explains how people's decision-making processes can be adversely affected by too much choice. It would seem that, as our options grow and expand, so do the possibilities for a potential wrong choice. We may find ourselves paralyzed in our efforts to make the very best possible choice, or experience regret. You'll know that an overabundance of choices is behind your anxiety if you find it difficult to make decisions, and even when you do, you worry about whether you made the right one. You feel obliged to thoroughly explore all possible options before acting, and can never be spontaneous, and this wastes enormous amounts of your time. You sometimes feel overwhelmed by the constant need to optimize. You often get so flustered with how much there is on offer that you end up not making any choice at all, or going without something you want or need. When experiencing something new, you tend to find it overwhelming, confusing, or stressful, rather than exciting or pleasant. You sometimes miss out on opportunities because you're afraid of taking a leap of faith and acting without perfect knowledge of how it will turn out. How to use fear setting Author, speaker, and productivity guru Tim Ferriss has written at length about the technique he calls fear setting. This is a method of making life decisions based on your fears rather than your goals. It might sound counterintuitive, but the power of this approach is that it gives you a broader perspective. Is what you're afraid of really such a big deal and helps you identify risk mitigation strategies that actually do something about it? By implementing fear setting, you can save energy you would have used worrying about insignificant decisions and funnel it into those big-deal decisions that really do matter. Ferris loves the quote from Seneca the Younger, We suffer more in imagination than in reality. With fear-setting, you commit to suffering no more than you should, so you can get back to the real work of managing reality. Set aside Chapter 14. Turning Your Anxiety Into a Superpower Wendy Suzuki is a neuroscientist and the author of Good Anxiety, Harnessing the Power of the Most Misunderstood Emotion. She believes that one of the best things you can do is to stop thinking of your anxiety as some debilitating disability and start appreciating its potential as a positive, motivating force in your life. With a little patience, acceptance, and conscious awareness, she believes anyone can can take their anxious tendencies and turn them to their advantage. We'll repeat here, however, that this in no way undermines the value of properly treating and even medicating anxiety if it has become severe enough in your life to warrant it. Nevertheless, all of us possess some ability to take charge of our anxiety, manage it, mitigate it, and, in some circumstances, Use it to help us achieve the things we actually want. Think about what anxiety is without any value judgment. It's energy. When you're nervous, fidgety, alert, hyperfocused, and burning with the desire to do something, it doesn't take much to see how such a state of mind can be valuable. Suzuki calls anxiety the superpower of productivity, provided you can harness it. You want to keep the energy and drive of anxiety while paying close attention to the content of your worries. Think of your anxiety as a wild horse. With a little training and steering, you can make it go in the direction you choose. Suzuki wants to remind us what our anxiety was originally for, what its evolutionary purpose is. It's simple. Anxiety is meant to keep you alert to real threats in the environment, and make sure that you have enough energy and focus to make a plan to keep yourself safe from that threat. That's a wonderful adaptation. So, let's not be in too much of a hurry to get rid of our anxiety forever, lest we also forego the power to focus, to be energized and motivated, and to think on our feet to make smart, proactive plans to move forward. Instead of trying to treat anxiety or get rid of it, Suzuki thinks we should respect and appreciate it and learn to work with it as much as we can. Like a sailboat needs wind in order to move, the brain body needs an outside force to urge it to grow, adapt, and not die, she says in her book. She claims there are in fact six superpowers we get if we can learn to reclaim anxiety rather than constantly try to push it away. These include the ability to Strengthen your overall physical and emotional resilience. Perform tasks and activities at a higher level. Optimize and fine-tune your mindset. Increase your focus and productivity. Enhance your social intelligence. Improve your creative skills. Instead of resilience, adopt the activist mindset. Let's start with the past. If you're currently struggling with issues and worries, try to think back to similar emotional trials and tribulations that you have already come through. What insights can you glean? Can you turn the fact of that past adversity into a reason to feel more confident in your abilities today? Can you see how a little of the same creativity and open-mindedness might help you overcome whatever hurdle you're facing right now? If you can learn to adopt what Suzuki calls an active mindset. We hope you enjoyed this episode of voiceover work. This is Russell, your host. You can learn more about me at Newton.com. You can learn more about our production company, Newton Media Group at newtonmg.com and more about today's featured author, Nick Trenton, at bit.ly slash Nick Trenton. Thanks for joining us today. We'll see you next week with a preview of a new audiobook.